so much. Beautiful, beautiful. The chorus of that, marvelous, marvelous words for our souls. You make beautiful things, you make beautiful things out of the dust. You make beautiful things, you make beautiful things out of us. You remember a transition in life? Remember a moment where you were moving from one piece of life into the next, from one series of responsibilities into another, or a, a coming of age where you went from uh, 20 and, and kind of wondering what you were going to do to 35, rock solid in what you were going to do, or, or maybe from 40 to 45 where you went from being the kid who had a bright idea to being kind of the staid adult who others looked to for direction and guidance, or, or maybe again being the guy who was at the, 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 the way to retirement. And there was a spiritual authority to you, an understanding of what you were all about. And, and in that transition, you felt unsure and uncertain. You knew that you had the ball and you had it firmly in your hands this day. And here it's just this little bit of time later and you don't kind of have it all figured out. 1998-99, those were the years of transition for me. 33 years old, serving here at St. John's. I remember distinctly sitting in a business meeting in Corona at a, another staff person's house, and transition was happening. Our senior pastor had just taken a call to serve at the Pastoral Leadership Institute, and at the, we went through a meeting, we had a devotion, and he looked at me and said, now you can do whatever you want to do. And I was like, whoa, ho, ho. Whoa, I'm a 33-year-old youth pastor. All I want to do is watch myself on the prices right at 11.15. And Timothy Kleckenberg, come on down. I said, I don't want any part of all, all this responsibility. He looked at me like, come on, big guy, let's go. And, and, and I must have looked back at him like a deer in the headlights. That transitional year was super hard, super hard. So young, so dumb. Thank God I was dumb. I didn't know what I was working on, you know. Lots of forces pushing and pulling. Lots of decisions that were called to being made that I had no clue about. Lots of things going on that, that, that as a 33-year-old you don't have a clue about. You can't figure it out. But... But yet this time of transition where you knew that if you fumbled, you were in deep weeds. And yet you had no idea where to carry the ball. It seemed like I was kind of dropped into a kettle where the water was kind of tepid and the Lord turned the heat up at the bottom. <laughs> and it just kind of blurped along. I think in 26 years of serving in the church and in 26 years of serving in this church, throughout about that nine month period, I never felt so alone in my life. I had people to call, we didn't have email, we didn't have text messaging back then, for goodness sakes, we just probably buried Moses and Elijah. I mean, it's like a million years ago, but, but maybe you identify with some of those feelings. I'm alone. If I don't carry the ball, no one will. If I don't make it through, it's not going to happen. It's all on my shoulders. 
And I'll work my way through. I won't think my way through. I won't pray my way. I'll work my way through it. That's being 33. You remember that time, that moment in your life where you were tired? You had done your best. You had worked and worked and worked. And, and you kind of turned around and you said, where's everybody? And everyone said, go get them. You're out there at the edge. And you knew the transition required transformation. But you really didn't have that figured out. That's what God does. He moves us. And he does so with the grace of a father. But, but he doesn't give us all the details and all the stuff that goes with it. And yet when he makes beautiful things out of the dust, he makes beautiful things out of us, sometimes we struggle with the whole dust part. If you look in your bulletins at the text from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21, I'd like to just look at the 16, verses 16 through 21. And you may want to keep your finger on that as well as the text from John chapter 8, because there's marvelous things going on. And if you're going through a transition time in life, you're saying, you know what, I'm fixing to retire, I'm trying to figure this out. Or I'm, or I'm getting up and I'm getting a new job, or I'm getting a new set of responsibilities. How God makes all things new is powerful, powerfully illustrated in these texts today. Beginning at verse 16 from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That worldly point of view in transition is, is, is just a phenomenally powerful thing. And, and it almost kicks in on an autopilot thing where you're, you're, you're working and you're grinding and you've got your groove and you've got your work going on. And, and, and all of a sudden it's like someone throws a cosmic lever and everything either just accelerates or slows down. And there you are in kind of the morass of transition. And the worldly point of view has got a couple pieces to it. One is, man, you got to fix it. I got to fix it. And, and, and if I can fix it, the sooner the better, with my hair on fire, ready to go. I can't sit and wait. The pain, the what ifs, the, the ambiguity, the questions I don't have answers to, all of those things I have to fix myself. And if I don't fix them, nobody else will. That's the worldly point of view. If I don't move now and I don't move quickly and I don't fix it, then it's going to be worse. And the worldly point of view almost always points back at us and says, I'm to blame. I did this. I created this. It's my fault. It's my problem. It's my responsibility. I did this. 
And sometimes that's reality. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes things just are what they are. Sometimes things just kind of roll out in a way that's unpleasant and difficult. And yet we kind of assume some of that into ourselves in a worldly point of view. Because from a worldly point of view, everything revolves around us. Me, my life, my energy, my gifts, my talents, my abilities. Me, me, me. So I'm the one who's got to fix it. And I'm the one who's to blame. And in that moment, from a worldly point of view, there's no redemptive peace to the pain we're going through. It's just something we got to stick in there and hang in there and hope that it gets better. And maybe down the road, we'll see how it goes. That's the worldly peace. I'm stuck here by myself and I got to fix it or there's no way out. Reflected beautifully in our gospel reading today from John 8. Jesus is teaching publicly. He's doing what he's been called to do. And and all of a sudden, the Pharisees and the leaders bring a woman caught in adultery. Caught in the act of adultery, John says. (laughs) Thrown in front of Jesus. With a very worldly point of view going on. The urgency in the text is powerful. It it all happens so blustery and so fast. As if someone would come in that back door, come running down and say, now what? Now what are you going to do? And the whole crowd goes, <gasps> people are going to be kidding me. We're in the middle of teaching. Are you kidding? What are we doing this for? It's so quick. And there's so much pressure, so much feeling and emotion that goes into that. The people know who she is in the town. She's put at Jesus' feet. And the guys are going, yeah, yeah, that's right. It's her, it's her, it's her. And then there's the shaming piece that goes along with that for her. She's brought out of a quiet place, doing something that shouldn't have been done by her or the man she was with. Of course, he's nowhere to be found or accused or blamed or shamed. And so on her own, her sins are made very, very public. And the blame is assigned to her and her alone. It's all on her. And now that her name is tarnished, her reputation is shot, and everybody knows who she is, then where does she go? All of that intensity, fear and shame and punishment, and how in the world do you fix this? There's just no easy way for her to back out of this situation. So Jesus becomes a non-anxious presence here in John 8. Instead of matching the emotion, instead of rising up and saying, you're right, she's bad news. And let me tell you just how bad a news she is and how many men she's been with. She's been with you and you and you and you and you. (gasps) Rather, Jesus takes the emotion out of the situation. You almost feel it when you read that text. There's a calming peace when, when Jesus is referred to. He backs up, he backs out, he leans down into the dirt and starts writing in the dust. No one knows what he wrote. Two things about this story. No one knows what he wrote and no one knows whether or not this was Mary Magdalene. It could have been, but nobody, nobody knows. It wasn't a picture or a videotape. 
And one by one, the crowd goes away until only the woman and the man named Jesus are left in the dust. And with a marvelous word of blessing, he takes away her shame. Woman, is anyone here to condemn you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And what had started as a, a, a man-focused, people-focused, painful accusation in public becomes a private, dusty conversation with Jesus and a lady who is about to find not shame and guilt and retribution, but about to find reconciliation through the eyes and the voice of a man. A man who loved her who didn't issue words of condemnation, but issued words of reconciliation, of life, and of peace. And with a vision and a hope that her life from that moment would be transitioned because of the transformation, and that her life of sin would be abandoned. So the worldly point of view is found to be one of accusation and sin and, and, and what you've got to do to fix it. And the Jesus-centered solution is found in the dust. You make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of the dust. You make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of us. The words of 2 Corinthians are beautiful. He says, you are now a new creation. Man, I don't know about you, but in the middle of summer, I don't feel like a new creation. Yesterday, I had it all figured out what I was going to do. I was going to get up early, which I did. I was going to have my cup of coffee, which I did. I was going to get my mountain bike out. I was going to ride up to the flag at the top of Robber's Roost. Google it on Google Maps. You'll find it. And you'll go, how can that pastor get all the way up there? <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And I got to the top of the hill and, and rode kind of the most boring, yucky part, and my wheel, my tire, my back tire was flat. Oh. I had eaten the night before knowing I was going to wear it off by exercise, right? Great psychology, Pastor Tim. It just... I don't feel like a new creation sometimes limped my bike back, fixed the tire, put it up on the stand, put the dope in it, made it, it, it just works. It's important for me and for you to remember that there was a point in life where God reached into the dust and the DNA of our parents and created us in his own image. We did not bear solely the image of our parents and, and, and that piece of family life, but we bear the image of the Creator, the image of God. We do not look at people from a worldly point of view, for we are new creations, each one of us unique, each one of us handmade. No two clay pots are the same. You and me, we're different, and it's a good thing we're different, but we were handmade out of the best stuff, the best dust, 
And when God made Adam and God made Eve, he blew into them the nefesh hayah, the breath of life. And they stood up and they said, wow, this is great. Eve didn't look at Adam and say, well, you're a little paunchy around the middle. You can get the mountain bike out this weekend. And I think Adam looked at Eve and said, wow, good work. Nicely done, Lord. That's fantastic. Beautifully created, just like you. Beautifully created. In the image of God, you were created. God doesn't make garbage out of dust. He makes beautiful things out of dust. And he animates us and gives us life and breath and emotion and intellect and all of those things that allow us to engage in relationships one to another, husbands and wives, parents and children, friend to friend. And when that peace broke down, he sent his son Jesus who made all things new, taking our sins, our shame, our brokenness, our alienation from God and reconciling us back with God, making that relationship that we have with God absolutely 100% new. It's as if we were thrown in front of Jesus and he was digging in the dust and we looked up at all the accusers and Jesus said, is there anyone here to accuse you? I said, no. And he goes, neither do I. The Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. We have been brought up out of the dust and made new in Christ, reanimated, renewed, refreshed, breathing faith back into our bodies so that through those pieces of brokenness there's the continuing line of God's reconciliation and kindness to us in Christ. And then there's the mission. And the mission is, ugh. Paul says, I, I just love that. He says, it is as if God were making his appeal through you. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. See, at 33 years old, you don't see the big picture. That's just part of being 33. <laughs> Sorry, 33-year-olds. I'm telling you, it's way better the older you get. A little less hair, a little grayer hair, a little paunches, all right. See, I remember going from that moment of being confused and hurting and struggling to a time of reaffirmation of calling. I had a call at that time as well to go to Zion Lutheran Church in Alexandria, Minnesota. And it's as if God had taken one of those things and said, here or here, you're gonna stay in orange because it ain't gonna be easy, young man. You're gonna have to suck it up. You're gonna have to get tough. You're gonna have to strengthen your legs, stiffen your upper lip, and you can't be such a baby all the time. You're either gonna toughen up or you can retreat back to Minnesota where you can have a little simple, easy ministry that you will love and you can fish all the time and it'll be great and you can live by your in-laws, your wife will be happy, it'll be great. <laughs> and we said, we're staying here. My wife and I looked at one another and we said, you know what, in this transitional time, we're gonna hunker down we're not going to wimp out. We're not going to be a baby. We're not going to not trust God. We're going to 
We're going to seize a hold of the opportunity that God has laid before us. And we're going to get after ministry in this place. And God gave me a long view instead of a short view. He took away the desperation and gave peace through the failure after failure after failure, for the dumb things that I would say. And elders of this congregation would come forward and say, Pastor Tim, you can't say those things. And I would smile and go, oh man, I'm so sorry. And yet God was working a good work in me as a Christian and in us as a congregation. See, I forgot to realize that some stuff has to die before other things can be raised up. And it takes time to move through those transformational transitions. And it takes history to look back and see the blessed people God put alongside of you that walked with you through that difficult, difficult time. Christ makes his appeal through our blessedness to be sure, but even more when we are brought back from the dust. And those stories of being brought back and being strengthened are real and raw and become the fiber that holds life back together. If you want to hear a good dusty story, it doesn't necessarily start with once upon a time. But it might start with something like this. But even more, I used to be an alcoholic. And let me tell you what God has done in my life how many years I've been sober. He maybe starts with, I used to have this unquenchable anger toward other people and felt out of control in my life. But let me tell you how God used my time of unemployment to bring me peace and a new connection in my life and my family. Or I used to struggle with depression and was so afraid of the future but God's love has remade my heart and giving me a new hope. He raised me up from the dust and brought me very close. And now every day isn't perfect, but every day is hopeful. That's what Paul is talking about. About Christ making his appeal through you. One of the best things about our congregation is that there's younger people and older people sitting together in community. And the older people, I can see your eyes right now. You kind of smile and go, yeah, Pastor Tim, you're 53. Wait till you're 73. And I look at the 33-year-old people or like my son at 26. And I go, just wait. Wait till you look back. And through the broken twists and turns of life, you see the goodness of God. It's then that you're an ambassador of he who does the work of reconciling, of bringing disparate parts together, of working in the dust and the grist of human life to recreate to make all things new and to make beautiful, beautiful things. Our Lord, our God, the one whom we represent to the world makes marvelous things out of our lives even when we're in that dusty, dusty moment. Amen.
Let's pray. Amen. <laughs> Lord, I thank you for us. Those really thin moments of life. We're from a worldly way of looking at it. We got to fix it. If we don't, no one will. We, we look around, we think we're all alone. And, and then the, the, marvelous, the marvelous economy and the way that you do things. You, there's always more people around us that are there cheering us on than, than we know in the moment. The, the circumstances are never as dire as, as we think. And there's always a redemptive peace at the end. So for those of us who've been through that, Lord, we are grateful, maybe a little battered and a little bruised, but grateful for the wisdom and the lessons of life and the strengthening of faith and the reliance on you that that brings. And I know this morning, Lord, I, I know personally, people this morning who are, who are in that thin part of life right now, who would love nothing more than to just go out of the doors of the sanctuary today and say, I'm free. And yet they've got to go back to uh, the unemployment line. They've got to go back to a, a sick loved one. They've got to go back into a conflicted family situation. They've got to go into something. And, and we pray that your recreative power would, would strengthen their hearts this morning. And that through the painful pieces of life, we would be your ambassadors as well. It's easy to say, follow me, when everything's easy and hunky-dory. It's, it's hard to say, follow me, when you're bearing up under a cross. So I pray, Lord, for this dear congregation that I love with all my heart, that you would draw those who are struggling today into your close, close reach, and that you would bear them up change their point of view and help them find redemptive pieces in the midst of transition and transformation. We gather together as a congregation because some days it's the day for me to be weak and other days it's the day for me to be strong, but all of us are in Christ. So we celebrate that this morning. So we sing and we pray and we listen and we speak. Grant us your peace. Jesus' name.